Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comic. I'm Eamon Clark. I'm at Thought Bubble, this time in Harrogate, not Leeds, which has thrown us all slightly. And I am with recurring guest Gareth A. Hopkins. Hello. Gareth, welcome back. Th- thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure. Well, it's been a while. It was episode 20, Killing Time, with in- Ingo- Indigo Prime, with yeah. um, what they call Windward and... Windward and Cord. Wood- right, thank yeah. you. Um, before we get to an interesting book that you've chosen for today, or an interesting sort of group of stories, uh, you've been tabling today at Thought Bubble. Mm. How's that been? It's been um, okay. So... Uh, I think any convention there'll be dead tables yeah. for whatever reason and I don't it's, I think it's, uh, having um, helped out at cons it's always really difficult to tell where they're going to be Yeah, and sometimes it feels like maybe we're on a bit of a dead table so it's, it's a busy convention yes. it's obviously footfall but it's not coming past us all the time I don't know I'm, I'm having a nice day I Good. don't come with any expectations of um, minting uh, something like making loads of money so it's been good and um, what I tend to get with my work is people stopping to talk about it yeah. so I'll talk for 10-15 minutes about what I've done rather than just someone picking it up and walking off So, which is fine it's what I'm used to now right okay um, so because obviously you're selling your own sort of self-made comics which we're going to talk about in a moment we had you on. We talked about 2008 origin stories. Have you had a chance? Because I know you've been very busy with your own comics. Yeah. Have you had a chance to look at anything recent from 2008? Um, I've got the small house. Oh right, the the, the dread one, and really enjoyed that. I, I haven't. There's not enough space in my life to keep reading the prog every week. Unfortunately, right. I find it really difficult to keep up with. Uh, and it got to the point where I was buying it every week, and then maybe reading one story, and then. Come, like telling myself I'd come back to them and then they became a big stack of unread comics because reading piles are like that right so no I, so I um, picked up a small house and um, I just constantly revisit bits and pieces from the collection so um, John Smith stuff or um, uh, the case files and stuff like that I'll go back to but no nothing new new okay all right, well, you sort of mentioned his name. Let's get on to it. Last time, obviously, as I say, Killing Time. Mm. Famous story from 2008. Slightly more obscure one this time, but from a brand about the same period. Tell us what you've yeah. picked. Uh, I've picked Revere, um, which he did with Simon Harrison. Um, I, uh, so, yeah, it came out in the early 90s, um, my formative years. Right. So a lot of the comic is sort of planted itself in my subconscious and that's why when I like, came back to comics after like, the traditional break from yeah. university that I hunted it back out again and right uh, and got back into it yeah so you remember this from when you as you say your formative years of reading the Prague yeah okay so we've got three stories Finder's Edge Prague 744 to 749 1991 uh, Written in Water Prague 809 to 814 1992 book 3 interestingly titled uh, Progs 867 to 872 in 1993 obviously J- uh, John Smith mm-hmm. Simon Harrison lettered by Annie Parker so I think Jack Potter turn, takes over for book 3 yeah he did bits and pieces in book 3 yeah I guess the editor at this time was Richard Burton I think so yeah yeah so 
Why have you chosen Revere for the book club? So as I said, it was one of those stories which there's certain images in it which had like planted themselves in my memory and would float back up. And so when I would remember the progs I read as a kid, it was particular stories sort of come back. Like, And there's lots of good stuff that was coming out at that time that I don't remember. But this one stuck with me for whatever reason. Right. Um, and so I hunted it out in this extreme edition, which has been collected in, and sort of digested it. And I remember, yeah, I'm not sure what I remember. I just remember particular images. And I thought if I came back to it, I could make sense of it again. Right. Uh, that was the idea. And then it, it was only on like the third or fourth reread that it, it made total sense. Okay. And it, it makes total sense in that if you allow some of there's noise in it which obscures the meaning and if you take that away then it's a pretty straight story but there's lots of lots of symbolism in there which I've given up decoding right <laughs> so yeah yeah okay um, I mean I'd looked at it before and found it uh, strange yeah uh, so I read it this is probably the first time I read it properly I think was this mm. time and it is yeah it is an intriguing one tell us I mean <laughs> Who is Revere the Witch Boy and Mm. what is the sort of basic setup? The basic setup is it's set in a uh, post-apocalyptic London where uh, it hasn't rained for a a long, long time. Uh, It's sort of... If Mad Max was set in, like, East London sort of thing. Um, And uh, Revere is... He's called the Witch Boy. And we don't know much about him other than that he's... He's called... He's a late teenager who uh is wanted by the the powers the the, the land land lanzas yes the lanzas the lanzas um he's wanted by them and it, um and then he is being buffeted by forces outside of him into specific courses of action which he's uh he's training himself up for something but he's not sure what uh and yeah that's that's the basic setup, um, and then around that, so uh, we we only learn little bits and pieces yeah. about him. So he lives with his mother, who is a floating disembodied head. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, and then there's a few other main characters in it, but they're, they're sort of plot points. Yeah, as much as they are characters. Right, uh, and and that's how that's how the story's told. So characters that are there specifically to serve a purpose in the story right which we might get into in a bit okay yeah i mean it seems that from the first episode that it's going to be a sort of survival in a post-apocalyptic landscape Mm. and it's going to be something about stealing medical supplies or obtaining medical supplies or obtaining water yeah because there's a sort of raid in the first one yes and then you get these weird the Lanzas who are always a constant sort of threat after, they're always after Revere mm-hmm. and they're led by a guy called Neil um, Commander Neil Commander yeah. Neil yeah with the the Baron who is the the Grand Overseer you only see it in the last book right yeah and then it does get what you know. What seems to be familiar ground. It does get more and more strange. Well, yeah. So you get that first, the first um, six pages. Yeah. Uh, the, so the first uh, 
uh, episode, I guess, is pre- it's pretty standard 2018. There's stylized art, stylized yes. painted art, but you've got um, one lone character up against an army. He does some sort of magic special fighting tricks and wins the day and then disappears off. And that's pretty standard 2000 AD. But then the next one, he goes on an astral journey yeah. out across the, the desolate um, landscape, gets sucked into uh, the... Um, uh, what's it called? The shriveled womb? The crooked womb. Right. Which is the home of the hermit. And then the hermit gives him a task to come back and then so then he does that journey physically goes on another spiritual experience and then at the end of the first so we're talking about books yes in at the while he's in the crooked womb he is invited by some forces and they say that he's got to jump they take him to the edge of a ravine and they say you've got to jump you've got to end the world and he refuses to Uh, and that's where the, the first book ends I think uh, yes. let me just check because it does it all sort of blurs in a little bit but, yes um, I mean there's repeated sort of uh, imagery and symbolism about making a leap and making taking the fall and yes, so on isn't that's there? it and that's it and th- so at the end of the first book his the, the sort of big baddie appears yeah. who is called the Matchard I think yes. that's what it is the sort of hideously over sexualized predatory monster female yeah who uh her and her little band of of goblins um make revere's life a misery yeah um and in fighting them he comes unstuck and gets kicked out of the crooked womb and that's that's the end of the first book he gets found by uh this character the the uh the astrologer who's dressed up like a jester yes um and he gets found by him and um taken back to his house that's the end of the first book and then the in the next book which is written in water he the astrologer trains him up to become a uh, they they cure him they train him up to become like a a more concise brutal weapon yeah uh, and he goes through physical changes there then the lanzers find him at his house and they do a raid on his house in which uh the astrologer is killed his mother is killed and taken captive and then he around the same time he meets a mysterious woman called Chloe who comes into his life and there's a bit of a sort of romantic interlude should we say yeah so uh, yeah there is and quite a grown up one yeah oh very yes yes yeah and so they they start a relationship and then the matchard comes back kidnaps Chloe and takes her away Revere Revere's fighting powers he's able to fight against these forces which come in but it doesn't make any difference like Chloe's still kidnapped then you see him he salt, like he, he goes back into himself he, he, he retreats right. into himself and then um, he lets his body sort of carry him back to the car park which is like the centre of the story is this is a car park a graffitied car park a yeah. graffitied car park yeah and the, um, based on images they'd found in his house the Lanzers know that that's where he'll go that it, right. it's an obsession of his and that he'll he'll go back there they're lying in wait he does and then it sort of reverts back into that 2000 AD one against many fights and he uses his magical fighting powers to make his way through and then 
but he realizes to at the the last page of this is him throwing himself off the roof like finally sacrificing himself to fate and and hurtling off and then book three which comes a bit later and is a, a a change in style in terms of the artwork um, is him going through the realm of the dead um, and coming to terms with both his role and what he's expected to do Mm. Uh, and also um, he fights against the match art again but this time he realises what it is and he's able to overcome the the forces there so um, there's a point uh, I'm trying to find it. So he reunites with Chloe in the underworld, and then he—I can't remember exactly how he f- how he wins. I think it's just a, a realization of of what this thing of what the match art is allows him to beat it, and then he goes and destroys the world. Yeah, and it has an ending of sorts, and yeah. uh, a possibility that it might all. Let's do it all again. Yeah. So, and it's it's so the plot is tied into the symbolism. So he's called the Aquarian, and right. throughout he's referred to as a water carrier. Yeah. Of, of one sort or another, and a lot of it's tied into stuff that I don't I don't know enough about tarot or astrology or any of that. No, not me. <laughs> to make sense of the symbolism. Right. Uh, and there's lots of symbolism hidden in the artwork, and whether or not, uh, how that's come about, I'm, I'm not sure, but. Um, uh, in ter- he ends the world by there's a hidden reservoir where the Lanzas have been storing all of the water and he goes there and he releases it all in one shot and that kick starts the world into a new cycle of rebirth right. so you see the, the, the last page is, is Chloe and Revere and sort of a yin yang there yes so they've returned back to, a, to balance and they'll, they'll start ah, okay right so yeah that's the, that's the, the plot okay as it is. So it's John Smith. Yeah. Uh, you've done Killing Time with mm-hmm. me. We've done, had him on uh, to do Cinema, of course, a lot of people's favourite non Jerry oh, Fri- yeah, yeah. Jenny Friendly Day, Rogue Trooper. Of course, we've done Cradle Grave, his great mm. hoodie horror. Um, obviously, you know, he, he can be one of two, the, you know, Tharg's more challenging, mm. um, dare I say, metaphysical type of writers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, he and there's um, certain like because there's a lot of body horror in his yeah. in his comics um, and a lot of sort of esoteric natured yes. things going on uh, and that's that's what appealed to me I think as, as a I think and I think it's that nature that sort of there's a, it sort of triggers in the brain like you want to solve the mystery that there's right. something hidden in there and I think that's what led to it getting planted so deep in my in my brain that I needed to come back to it just that unresolved mystery and there's there's that underlying thing in his thing in his stories and a lot of his stories um, end with the end of the world as well yeah so Tyranny Rex yes has at least two universe ending <laughs> uh, events events yeah so yeah Okay, interesting. I mean, you know, as you say, it, it took you two or three readings, so perhaps I need to have another run at it as well. Well, because I've been saying today, like, so I've been saying today at the table, I'll be, I'll be doing this, and people have been walking up and saying how difficult it is to read. Yeah. And what I realised on my third rereading is that if you take away a lot of the... There's lots of... Uh, there's, um, John Smith has this uh, 
brilliant talent for inventing entire worlds in yes. a pair of words. Yep. So the crooked womb, and there's there's all there's like long lists of them in this mm. of like of concepts and places and things that never get resolved or explained, and you don't know if he knows what they, what they are, but they're in there. But if you remove all that and all the symbolism that Sam Harris has built. Sam Harrison has built into the artwork. There is kind; it's very literal as a story. Um, so that the force is, that, but what it's like a jigsaw that uh, is easy to complete, except there's a piece missing. Yeah. And then if you decide that you'll just take the jigsaw without that piece, then it makes sense. It's, right. it's finished. And the, I think the piece that's missing is why Revere has been chosen as the person who's going to end the world because that's never explained Mm. all the other things which are happening to him you're not sure why they're happening to him right so when in the first book he is told that he has to end the world and he's got to take this leap no one says to him why he's got to do it or what the repercussions of that but they say take the leap end the world that's it job done yeah and because he says I don't know what you're talking about um, and all the other trick that it does on you is that the characters giving plain information then say it's a riddle. So here's a riddle. You've got to take the fall. It's not a riddle. He's literally got to take a fall. Um, and so, yeah, so it's quite literal in that sense. So right. a lot of the dialogue isn't a riddle. It's just a piece of information without the context to make that information make sense. Right. Um, and, but then there's stuff in there. So, for instance, and also the, the other example of that is with the character Chloe. So when he first he meets her in the bar for the second he's the second time he meets her, but he meets her in a bar, and the hanged man, who's someone from the tarot, is floating in front of yes. him. Yes, yeah. And he literally says, "She's bait. She's bait for what to make you do what we want you to do." Right. Um, whatever happens next, just to rem- just remember that. But unless you take that literally it doesn't make any sense yeah but she so what Chloe is is the universe has put her in Revere's way to take her away to, to essentially it's like a forced fridging right <laughs> you know the, the green yeah. lantern fridging yeah thing. yeah yes fridging so, women yeah yeah so it's it's putting a fridged character in for Revere to then force him into taking that leap to make him do the thing that needs yeah. to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then the matchard being a figment of his subconscious made real. So, uh, and they glance past it when he beats her, and then it's like a child's drawing of like an oversexualized character. Yeah. And that's something that he's been carrying around with him that is then made flesh as an antagonist to hunt him down. So, okay. Yeah. I'm just going back to one of the names that we've mentioned because there's Commander La- um, Neil, which yeah. is spelt with a K, with a K, yeah, like Nigel Neil. And I think somewhere there's a reference to a Wyndham block, as in John Wyndham. Mm. And the, the name I was expecting, but I didn't catch it on the way through, was Ballard because it felt very sort of JG Ballardian with the car park and yeah. the brutalist architecture. And yeah, exactly. And you know the tower block, the car park, and the the, the devastated London with no water. You yeah, know, that felt like a uh, you know almost like a Ballardian type. Uh, yeah. if that's a word. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. science fiction apocalypse. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating stuff. 
Um, and what's interesting for the, one of the other interesting things about this is that it's although John Smith's the writer, yeah. and Sam Harrison's the artist, and normally that means that the writer gives the artist jobs to do and then they do them. Mm. With this book, it's it's not really clear where the balance of the ideas comes from. And I like uh, I was, I've been talking to a few people about it, and they said it's Sam Harrison's book, which John Smith has. Written to Oh, okay Or But I think it's probably Somewhere between the two Well, I mean You know When you get these Sort of synergies Between writer-artists We get great things Don't mm. we in 2000 AD Yeah I mean If that's alright We'll switch to Simon Harrison For a moment then Yeah So like Bradley mm-hmm. uh, Famous I suppose For being not For not being Carlos Esquerra On Strontium <laughs> yeah. Dog um, and, and of course writing you know the final solution or drawing some of the final solution yeah um, and then he escapes from 2000 AD into the fine art world I mm-hmm. gather you know uh, uh, with, um, Becca Harrison yes yeah. that's right who's a photographer and he still does the art side and she does the photography mm. yeah so I was looking at their website yesterday to sort of you know uh, I'm very good but so here he, ha- here he is this painted artwork mm. which is all sorts of both weird and wonderful I thought yeah um, tell us a little bit about the artwork and how you know the effect it had on you and what you thought about it. So, it wasn't. It's not really like anything else in the prog. I mean, there's lots of paint artwork. But it's from the time, yeah, post um, Horned God when it was very popular to do painted that, artwork. Yes, painted. Everybody's painting all of a sudden. Yeah. Yes. So I think, and I think the the pages he's the done. And what, what's interesting about the reproduction is that they've put this white border around. Yes. But I'm pretty sure they were made to be full bleed. I think ah, they're supposed okay. to go all the way to the edge throughout. Right. But the the first two books look like so they're probably multimedia. Uh, multimedia. Like there's a lot of paint and some of there's a really uh, effective bit where these sort of like evil cherubs lift him up. Oh and, yes, and they're yeah. Penciled in and, and painted around. Yeah, there it is. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, in book one. Right. Um, and th- but as it as the book when you get to book three, uh, it changes up in style. It becomes a lot more. What's the word I'm looking for? It's smoother. So I think he's used paint cans and airbrushing techniques rather right. than rather than brush strokes. Yeah. Um, and again, he uses like photocopies of previous pages as flashbacks as well. You can see it in things like... Oh, I'm not going to be able to find it now, I said that. But he will take images from previous books and sort of paste them up into, into there. So you see that leap off the car park is, is hidden in, in these pages. Yeah. Um, but he must have been working at a really large scale. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that sometimes... The, it can seem quite murky the artwork as as reproduced painted work often is I'm pretty sure because um, on the uh, 2000 AD artwork group on Facebook I think Dale's got a lot of these pages oh has he right yeah. oh, okay. and, and when you see photographs of them yeah. they're, they're brilliant vibrant things and I think in reproduction they've been mur- like made a bit mur- murkier than they actually are oh okay that'd be interesting because um, I, I was going to bring me to something, yeah, okay. Yeah, because there's some examples in this first one. So and this is just me sort of like having painted and then scanned. Just on this first page, uh, and I'm pointing at the page, sorry for the recording, but you can see where that's black yes. there. That's because if you were to look at that um, in real life, 
um, that the other dark colours would be as black as that, but for whatever reason the light's picked up on a few areas. In the reproduction, is, right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, I, mean I, thought, I was fascinated by the art. I was particularly fascinated by the big sort of full-page splash pages that he does. Because mm. one of the thoughts, you know, that I, I had was that I, it looked like something I should be seeing in an art gallery, hanging yeah, in an art gallery. Think, yeah. And I'd be fascinated to see, you know, the Dale's originals. Uh, you know, it's going to be the second time in a few months that we've mentioned Francis Bacon on mm. the podcast. But, you know, there is there is a sort of Francis Bacon look to some of his figure work. Yeah. You know, that they are these sort of weird and wonderful, distorted, leathery-skinned uh, characters. Um and the Lanzas, these sort of like, you'd imagine there'd be a sort of typical future police um, from 2000 AD in a way. Mm. And the thought that came to my mind was, when looking at them was the, um, the Cenobites from yeah, Clive Hell, Barker's... Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, yeah Hellraiser. Especially you know. uh, Commander Neil. Because yes. in, in the first episode, he gets... Um, he got vomited on. It yes, burns his face acid off. vomit, yeah. And so every time you see him after that, he's got this hideously distorted face which right. also, and that's what's driven him to hunt Revere down that's throughout the three books yeah, yeah. Um, and, but yeah the Cenobites is a, is a good call I'm not I'm not twigged to that so I just I mean I, I was I, I still struggled with the plot although you've managed to explain <laughs> it to me but the, the looking at the pages and just when I just decided oh I'm just going to look at these as sort of you know pages of artwork mm. that I would I would walk around the gallery and admire yeah and I, interesting, we'll come to this in a minute when we talk about your own comics, but I could see in a way this might appeal to you because there's a certain amount of abstraction at times. It can be, yeah. yeah. But you're saying about the, um, seeing them as, as single paintings, because yes. in, in a way they are, but and it um, lends itself to the storytelling as well, and it's something that I noticed by focusing on it, but sometimes the scene will change with the page changing. Yeah. Um, rather than like a series of things needing to happen to like carry you through the book, the, changing the page will change the scene, which can be jarring as well and lead to that other the sense of not being able to follow it. Right, because you expect to turn the page and follow on from what you're reading before, whereas without giving you any information, it's changed. Um, and I think that I think on reading it. Um, on reading it in the prog, it must have been nightmarish to try right. and follow. Yeah. Um, because, um, yeah, just because it can be difficult. Because it, it, unless you read it end-to-end, the fractured nature of it and needing more information than you're getting mm-hmm. can sort of lead you to... And I've, I'm pr- I think people... Some people love this. Yes. But equally, people hate it because it didn't make any sense and it was over-stylized and... Yeah, I went to do a little bit of background reading again on John Smith and Simon Harrison, mm. and the place I looked on was Alex Frith's Hero of Two Thousand AD yeah. Blogspot, and of course Alex, like yourself, mm. loves this. Yeah, um, I think you know in a certain way he's not entirely sure why you know, but he mm. just finds it very powerful. Yeah, but I, I did wonder whether at the time whether it baffled 2000 AD readers I think it must have yeah yeah yeah. Um, but as a kid I didn't know anybody else reading 2000 no well, this is no. the thing you see because there weren't forums then yeah you know unless you were talking to people who you knew who read it then who did you talk to about it mm. yeah okay so I mean it's, it's a puzzling one but it's interesting and I did 
I just, uh, I admired the art again and again and again. I was interested in a way because we've both got with us the 2080 Extreme Edition issue yep. 20 mm. that they actually got collected as an Extreme Edition because mm-hmm. they would do things like the Mean Team, they would do Shaco, they would do mm. Meltdown Man, some of the early stuff. Yeah, Revere's never been collected in any other form. No. Uh, I was actually I was slightly surprised it made a um, an extreme edition. It also got an episode of Mike Mulcher's 2008 ABCs. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is there is some love for it out there. I think there is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was it going? I was in terms of oh eclectic. Says uh, there's a few of us online who are just like really want because I'm not one for big hardback prestige edition comics right. I'd rather have something I can stick in my backpack and read on the train yeah. which ironically this is really difficult to read on the train because some of it's so some graphic bit, some, some bits are a little bit yes um, <laughs> please don't look over my shoulder yes. yeah. but um, this is the sort of book that I'd like a, a big fancy edition of Yeah. Um, uh, and I think it's so we used to go on Twitter and just sort of badger the official like right. the, the tweet dried say when's, when's Revier getting proper reprinted but, um, and you're right but the Extreme Editions also did a ke- in between the Meltdown Mans and the shake- Shakos and stuff they they redid The Dead true Massimo Bernardinelli that's a weird one yeah, yeah that's a really weird one yeah um, so nobody's and, picked that for the podcast <laughs> um, and, but there's the Extreme Editions are ju- they're just really nice comics right to, to have like I've, I've picked up a few of them uh, I think for me, that's sort of the best of 2000 AD format is the best format for 2000 AD. Right. Uh, for me personally. Well, actually, as we as we speak, of course, they've announced this best of 2000 AD mm. US style monthly comic next yeah. year. Goodness knows whether Revere will make the pages. <laughs> I don't think so. No, okay. um, I, I'd be surprised if there was anything in that that wasn't already in the Hachette right. editions. Sadly, the Extreme Edition issue 20 is out of print on the 2000D store, and mm. I had to get mine on eBay. Yeah. And they don't come up very often on eBay because people who love it keep them. Hoard it, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, perhaps they could just at least put that one back out, you know, <laughs> and make that available again. 1991, 92, 93. Busy time for John Smith. Mm. He was doing Tinry Rex before this, Indigo Prime before this, Killing Time is about the same sort of time. Mm-hmm. He was writing quite a few stories around this time. Mm. More recently, I guess, and I can't remember how many years ago now, 10 years or more, Cradle Grave, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, we know he's had some problems. He hasn't been able to write for the last couple of years. Mm. And he's always, I guess, he's always been a, um, a slightly... He's not been one of the fastest droids, has yeah, he? No. no. Um, so I've got to bring up the vexed question of 2000 and house characters. Yeah. Because we've sort of hinted what happens to Revere at the end of this story. Recently, he's come back. Exactly. Yeah. In the pages of Indigo Prime, where he appears to have been recruited as an agent for Indigo Prime, which is mm. great because Indigo Prime, you know, has all sorts of weird and wonderful agents. That's yeah. what they have. Yeah. Um, and there's also there's a there's a very villainous character in a monster in here called something like the Hook Tigra, mm. which is like. Um, to use Conrad Lydon from Space Spinner, it's like two-thirds black scorpion, half-human sort of monster. Yeah. And that appeared in the recent right. in the recent Indigo Prime as mm. well as another beastie. Yeah. And I know there's, there was a certain amount of talk about was it fair to use Revere? Mm. 
uh, as a character without John Smith writing him because he's so mm. obviously it's a John Smith character, isn't it? Yeah. Did you, I mean? Do you have any thoughts about that yourself? Um, so, because uh, it's Keck W who brought him back. Yes, uh, and, and he's, he's writing Indigo Prime at the moment. He is, yeah. And around the time that he picked it up, I was I was talking to him about it because he knew I was a fan, uh, and he said that he's going to bring Revere back. I was like, mm, okay, well, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I read the progs where Revere came back, and they sort of they weren't for me. Right. Uh, in terms of like whether or not writers should be allowed to play with other people's characters, I'm not as hardcore as some other people are. I think that there is license for people right. to play with other people's characters. I think I think that is fine, um, but um, it's how you handle the characters. And I th- my personal opinion on how Keck used them was that he was too enthusiastic. Right. So, in terms of how Revere is used in the story, he's almost like he's brutalized through it. Although mm. he's the hero of the story, uh, John treats him with almost indifference. Like, uh, and so when he came back as an action hero, yes, it it didn't sit properly. Uh, and I love and um, it's uh, Lee Carter, isn't it? Lee Carter does the artwork now, and yeah. I love the artwork. The artwork's and, uh, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. and I, I enjoy Keck's. Uh, like true enthusiasm for the character, he didn't bring it back yeah. because he hated the character. He brought it back because he really wanted to use the character. Yeah. But I think his enthusiasm for the character meant that he he didn't write it in the way that I was hoping it would get written. Right. Uh, and I, I like lots of Keck's other stuff. I love Fall of Dead World and yes, we've uh, we've been admiring Fall of, Fall of Dead World recently. Yeah. And um, oh, what's the one with the worms? Uh, oh gosh! Yeah. Oh. Knights of the no. Oh god! Yes, the Immense Machine and what's it called? The knight, the, the, the the Knight Templar robot. Yeah, we know what we're. we're yeah, talking. we know. What we're talking. We know. Yeah, I, really, yeah, I really love that, and uh, um, it was just that 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 use of the character didn't sit with me. Okay. I'm sort of I'm I'm sort of reassured myself that he's bringing back the character because he's such an enthusiastic fan yeah. himself, which I think is all right. I know yeah. it's a you know it's a it's always a vexed issue when you've got a favourite character written and created and drawn by somebody else and then they they reappear and mm. I, I and I know 2008 for instance hasn't really. I don't think they've come down off the fence yet about what's going to happen to Strontium Dog. Now there's no Carlos, you mm. know. I mean, obviously other people have drawn him, but yeah. you know, but anyway, we'll see. But it's just interesting. I do, you know, it's obviously an interesting subject. It does come up. Yeah. Because um, with characters, so the character like Dread, um, for a long time, I think people are only really comfortable with John Wagner writing him. Yeah. Or maybe Alan Grant at yeah. Push. Yeah. But then in recent years, I think Rob Williams has done a good job, and there's other writers who've done a good job. Michael Carroll, Al Ewing, although he's now too busy doing too busy Marvel, yeah. writing all of Marvel's yeah. comics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, and I think it's just like getting the right writer with the right yeah. handle on the character. But with Revere, it's such. Although at the end of the story, it says, "Let's go round again." Yeah. Like this is a cir- the circle of it is itself. Yeah. It doesn't need to come to out to be expanded out. Else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Favourite moments from uh, the Witch Boy of London, um, Revere? So, favourite... Mo- Can I just... I've just quickly got one... Yeah, sure. ...fan 
theory. Oh, great. I've got yes. very little basis. Okay. <laughs> other than I believe that the character of Revere is based on Simon Harrison. So physically, oh, okay. I think he's based on Simon Harrison. Like how he looked around the time based on based right. on a few photos I've been able to find and then I think the character the astrologer is John Smith oh. uh, especially one bit when you first see him scrambling around for Jack Daniels in the desert right that picture looks a lot like him right uh, and so that's my little theory oh, okay. that, that those characters are based on them and cool. there's not a lot in the text to support that no other than that <laughs> I want it to be true um, so yeah that's that's one of my little favourite things that it's it's the two of them going through the story but in terms of favourite moments um, the the end of book two where he throws himself off the top of the car park so right. uh, it's just um even without the rest of the book around it, it makes sense as a as a sequence of images. Yep. So you see him reach out for the butterfly, you see him take one step off, and then you see him just like out in the air chasing the butterfly, uh, and that sense of like release that you get, and even that the colour uh, of the page is much brighter, and uh, it's a, a bright yellow page, uh, and that I think that's my favourite moment, and that's the defining moment for me. Of the series, that, that releasing the ego yes. and giving yourself to fate is that's that what that's the core of the book, right? For me, so that's probably a leap my into the unknown and the end of book yeah. two. Or of but it. there's that very metaphysical, poetic moment. But there's also like the the bits of the story where he has like a big fight, uh, and there's uh, in book three when he starts travelling through mirrors. And, and slicing up the lances and doing all his ghost magic fighting. Oh, yes, yeah. There's just something really satisfying about that, about someone just coming back full bore, nothing can stop them. And, you, and it's just a satisfying end to, to that sort of story, I think. But it's like if when you watch Captain Marvel and she gets all the powers and yes. blows up all the spaceships, it's that similar thing, just done in an earthier way. Right. So, yeah, that, there's a moment when he reaches out of a mirror he's standing behind someone just reaches out and then you see them chopped up in the sink and he's, he's sat in the sink it's, it's a very horror film moment isn't it's it it's really horrible yeah but um, there is something quite satisfying about it yeah okay and let's play the grail page game let's give you all of these pages to choose from and a limitless budget to buy them with yeah. and there was even uh, there was at least one prog cover wasn't there that when he first appeared I think yeah uh, the, oh, that's not included in here I don't and there's think. also the, the star scan star bit scan the that's on the back of this extreme edition yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of grail pages there's that one, the one I've just described with him throwing himself at the car so end of book uh, two there's the last page of book two we're very sort of yellows and lovely and a beautiful page yeah uh, but there's also some of the, the big splash pages from book one. The, the one I described earlier with the um, when he's been ripped apart by the Machard's little goblins that, yeah. that, where they're in pencil. There's some... This, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a very violent page, but there is something very beautiful about it at the same time. But any of these pages would be a grail page, I think. Right. And there's been a few times when I've, like scrolled through Dale's pages and thought oh maybe I could just shove it <laughs> maybe <I> could. <laughs> but then I wouldn't know what to maybe, do with it it's not something I, I can hang it. it hang on the lounge wall <laughs> no no the kids might ask about they? yeah yeah uh, are there any in particular that you like? Well, I've chosen. I've got this one page that I keep coming back to. I did. I did wrestle with a few of the sort of like large splash pages. So this is the first page of book one, Finder's Edge, 
part six. Mm. And it's, again, it's a tower page because he's often on the top of the tower. Mm. Um, and this is where he's been, at the end of the previous prog, he was being encouraged to jump. It's a small thing, That's a leap one, of fate. Yeah. And then the next, the first page of the next episode... It's just Simon Harrison beauty. It's just, you know, there's lightning in the sky. There's one of these weird sort of fairy goblin things. There's mm. some tarot cards falling. There's beautiful kaleidoscopic colours. I just thought it was a fantastic looking page, yeah. basically. So I would have that one. Yeah. And I could probably just about get away with hanging it, I think. My <laughs> kids are growing up now, so it's all right. Um, yeah, so I would have that one. But, yes, you'll have to show me the other one that you want at some point. Send me a picture of yeah, it. Yeah, so we'll do, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So, Revere, you'll have to go back to the original progs or wait for an an edition of the Extreme Edition 20 to pop up on the um, Ebays, I guess. Unless, just pester 2000 AD, could you put it back in print? (laughs) That might be the easiest thing. Print on demand, maybe. Okay, cool, Gareth. Thank you for picking it. Interesting choice. You know, it's a it's a yeah. challenging one. And uh, yeah, it's, I love talking. And uh, as I was reading through it again in preparation for this, and there was just all these little things I wanted to talk about, and I could talk about it for hours, just page by page. Like, oh, look! So the page you've picked out, it's got the tarot card of death, yeah. and then that character turns up elsewhere in the book, the same character, and just those little things are what makes rereading comics interesting. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. So, Gareth, it's guest projects time. Yeah. And, of course, it's as we say, you do your own comics. Mm-hmm. You've been here today at Thought Bubble tabling and selling them. Yep. I've picked up a couple. Mm. So the w- last time I think we spoke, it was found forest floor oh, and maybe, things like yeah. that. Yes. Um, so you've obviously you had quite a few since then. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Petrichor, A Hill to Cry Home, and The Bones of the Sea, at least. Yeah, no, that's fine. So um, I'll try to keep it briefish. So um, Petrichor is uh, an abstract comic. Yep. It's in five chapters. Um, And when I first conceived and started working on it, it was going to be just those five chapters without any story or words. It was just going to be an art thing. But at some point, I decided that I needed to put some sort of textual content in there. Uh, and so I started doing so um, with Found Forest Floor and when Eric had done his abstract poetry which yes. had made it went the, I was going to do something like that but as I was writing it yeah so he I'll, I'll come back to how okay. that works in a second um, but as I was writing it like, some, life started crashing around me a little bit and a friend of mine died and so I started just writing about how I was coping with that and that made its way into the book and then so over a year it took me to sort of write it was the process of going through that so Petrichor like the, the title means it's the, uh, the sweet scent of soil after the first rain after a long period of dryness so that's sort of the, the, the idea of the book so it starts in a really dark place and gradually uh, comes out in a lighter one that's, that's what Petrichor is and uh, the people who've read it have responded in the way that I'd hoped, which is nice. Let's mention Tony Esmond of No Brow Press mm. and the Awesome Comics podcast, who knows what he's talking about mm. with 
small press comics, mm. and he wrote a very glowing review of it, didn't he? he was very that was just based on the first chapter. Was it? Oh, so right. What, what happened? Where there was I wrote the first chapter and sent it out to him and a few other people, just like, is this a good idea? Yeah. And then he went away and wrote the review, and yeah. I had to come up with four oh, more yeah, chapters. Finish it. <laughs> <laughs> but Tony loved it, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's it's been really well received. Um, uh, it was put out by Good Comics, who yeah. were kind enough to put it out for me. So. Yeah, so that's done pretty well. And that's the biggest thing I've done recently. Right. So the other two things are Hill to Cry Home, which I did recently, and Bones of the Sea. Yes. And so at the moment I'm working up to a big project called um, Explosive Sweet Freezer Razors. That's going to be that's okay. the title of the project. <laughs> and it's something... So after Eric and I had worked on Found Forest Floor, the way that we worked on it was I drew loads of stuff and then he wrote loads of stuff. I used about half of what he'd written to make found forest floor and had the other half of it just laying dormant in in a file um and so i've been using his poetry in places as a raw material right. so um held to cry home i decided that so hang on in terms of explosive sweet freezer razors the way that i'm making it is that um i've drawn a uh, 20 or so base pages and then I'm going over the top of those and mixed media and scanning those and photocopying those and just sort of generating content that mm. way. Scan it all in, it sits on my hard drive, and then I decide that I want to make a particular kind of story. Pick out, pick out the, the pages that best suit the story that I want to make and then write to the top of them. So I decided I want to make a ghost story, so picked out what worked best for me as a ghost story. Made Hill to Cry Home and then used Eric's text as the voice of the ghost. So I don't know if you've had a chance to read it yet. So I've read both... I bought them both from your table today, mm. and I've read them briefly at lunchtime. Yeah. Um, and I feel that, obviously, I need a bit of a slower, more <laughs> thorough read. But no, but I, I just... They are like ghost stories as poetry with, yeah. abstract, uh, with abstract art. Mm. And they are... You know, the bits, yeah. I, I must admit, the bits uh, that you're relating about your sort of like life, about simple things like, you know, waiting in car parks to yeah. pick up your kids after after theatre or whatever it is, yeah. um, is fantastic. And then, you know, the poetry of it and the sort of ghostly aspect of it. I love a ghost story. So the idea that there are, you know, we are ghosts, there are ghosts, it's, it's fantastic. So mm. I, I really, I think, you know, I, I enjoyed Petrichor as well. I thought that was great. Yeah. Very meditative and sort of, um, you know, these are not straightforward 2008 style comics. This is something different. Yeah. But they're fantastic. They're fascinating. Thank you. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. And so what I'm going to do is I've made three parts of Explosive Sweet Freezer Razor so far. I'm aiming to do about 16 of them and then collect them all up into this one weird, con- like, connected book. Right. That won't be for a couple of years now. Oh, okay. And it's going to take a while. So find Gareth at a convention, or would it be www.grthink.com? That's it, yeah. So it's grthink.com. Yeah. That's where we can find this stuff and buy it from you online, yeah? Yeah. Yep. Cool. Fantastic. One other guest project. Yeah. So... It's nearly 100 episodes since we had you on, um, or 80 episodes or so, anyway. Um, since then, of course, you started your own podcast. Own podcast, yeah. Which could not be more <laughs> more divorced from Revere and abstract um, meditative poetry ghost story po- um, comics. Yeah. Tell us. 
So I do a podcast about Alpha Flight. Um, <laughs> um, probably Marvel's superheroes, like most forgotten. Right. Considering how popular they were when they were released in the 80s. And then there was a point when they became a joke for whatever reason. Uh, and that's what we sort of get into in the podcast. But every episode, somebody comes on and we talk about a single, episode, uh, single issue of Alpha Flight. Uh, and uh, just, I think when I start, when I started reading Alpha Flight, I thought I desperately need to talk to somebody about this because there's something special in mm. these comics. Like both John Burns runs and then later Bill Mantlo and on and on. There's, there's something worth talking about, but I didn't have anybody to talk to about, so I had to start a podcast. <laughs> right, as we do. Yeah, as you yes, do. Yeah. I um, want to talk about this stuff. Let's start a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it is essentially triggered by, in one of the Bill Mantlo comics, they do something with the Puck character, yeah. which is sort of infamous now. Yes. And I wanted to talk about, and I haven't still haven't got around to talking about that particular issue. But, yeah. But um, yeah, that's why I started it. Okay. So where can we? What's the name of the podcast? It's Alpha Pod Flight. Right. Uh, because of my weird sense of humour, I thought it'd be good to have a really clunky, unsophisticated name for a podcast. <laughs> so Alpha Pod Flight is what it's called. And you can find it in all your podcatchers wherever all you find them, podcasts. Yeah. yeah. And you've had both your kids on an episode as well, on episodes as well. Yeah, uh, that was because they just wanted to be involved. My well, that's great. My son is old enough to read Alpha Flight and wasn't that interested. And my daughter wasn't interested at all, so she's done some Dr. Seuss books right. and some Etherington children's books. And yeah, it's just it's nice to be able to do th- like play around a bit with the with the format. Excellent. So um, I'll put the links in the show notes. Uh, grthink.com for um, Garrus Comics and Alpha Pod Flight for um, yeah for more Alpha more Alpha Flight discussion than you thought you needed. <laughs> and interestingly, I learned from your podcast because I always had the idea that this was a John Byrne passion project, mm. which is a sort of one of the the sort of urban legends about it. Yeah, and actually, he well, was so that, uh, that's what because I had been led to believe that I think from reading interviews with John Byrne that he'd right. been coaxed into it by Jim Shooter yeah but I had the pleasure I had lucked into talking to Jim Shooter at MCM a few weeks ago and asked him about it and he said it was John Byrne's idea and so I don't know what the truth is anymore oh okay um, so yeah that'll come up in the podcast I'm sure okay we'll talk about it yeah if I come on the podcast <laughs> Excellent, Gareth. Well, it's fantastic. Um, we've done uh, Revere, the Witch Boy of London. You did Killing Time. We'll be interested to see what you do next time, which challenges me even further. <laughs> uh, great. Well, from here at Thought Bubble, thank you to everybody for listening to Mega City Book Club. Please subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcasts, uh, follow on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, MCBC Podcast on Twitter. Uh, we've probably got a MySpace page by now. I don't know. We're really catching up. Or email mcbcpodcast at gmail.com. And all of these links, including links to Gareth's work, you'll find at megacitybookclub.com. Uh, and that'll do us. So from here in Harrogate, we're about to go out now and hopefully either go to the party or get something to eat and drink anyway. Mm. Until next time on Mega City Book Club, when we're passing judgment on another great 2000 AD book, it's goodbye from me and... It's goodbye from me. Wow.